every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd. He's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I am your host, Brian Carney. I'm excited to have my guest today, uh, David Gates. David is the co-founder and CEO of Gates & Company, which is an international investment banking and management consulting firm that has worked with over 170 companies in helping them achieve their goals. David, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I uh, enjoy the format here where you get to drink and talk at the same time. It's great, right? (laughs) So speaking of which, I'm going to be drinking an Iron Hill, which uh, Iron Hill Brewery, they have a restaurant within a walking distance from my office. I'm going to be drinking their hazy, juicy IPA called Galactic Stardust, which I'll give a review at the end. How about you? What are you going to be sampling? You're within a staggering distance of of the uh, the restaurant. So uh, I'm going to be drinking a Francis Connor Weiss beer from uh, Bavaria. Uh, I've got my Bavarian bottle opener, uh, and so I'm going to be drinking a Weiss beer. Uh, we have an office in Munich, so I have to drink a, a Bavarian beer. Perfect. I love it. That, that's, that's right on brand. Right on brand, and you also get the everything is a branded glass. And oh, that's a full pilsner glass, branded. That's oh, yeah. awesome. The problem problem is we don't sell half liter bottles here in the United States. We only sell the uh, smaller ones. But I'll be drinking as much as I can. Okay, perfect. Cheers to you. Thanks for ha- thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I guess the first place we can start. Just tell us a little bit about Gates and Company. Well, so Gates and Company's been around for. Uh, Quite a while since 1999. So where we were then and where we are now is probably a, a bit of an evolution. Um, but I'll start with where we kind of define ourselves today. Um, and I think we're a little bit unique in that we just I would define ourselves as two key components today. You know, one is that we're a business sale preparation firm, mm-hmm. and we are a business sale execution firm. Ooh. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we'll get a firm that comes to us and says, "Hey, we're looking at selling. We think we're worth 25 million dollars," and we look at it and say. Well, you know, your operations are a little bit squirrely. Your governance isn't quite there. Your financial controls could be better. And what's your strategic plan and how are you going to get there? And oftentimes they have answers for some of those, but not all of those, and realize that their valuation and their ability to execute could be much better um, if they were uh, strategic about how they get there. So yeah. our roots, day one, were, were a we were like a McKinsey and Company, a management consulting firm. Um, so we still have really good core competency in those areas. So that's where we would come into somebody day one and say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, uh, you know, how are you going to get there? And we would help with uh, objectively assessing their capabilities, their resources. You know, what, what do they have today and what do they need in a year or two years from now to get there? And right. kind of look at those gaps and capabilities or resources and then uh, help them build a strategic plan to get there. Then when they are ready, if it's six months, 12 months, 18 months later, that's when our investment banking team um, comes in and tries tries to turn the transaction as quickly and as efficiently as possible and getting the highest valuation possible. So that's kind of where we are today, really much more of, of preparation for a sale and then execution of the sale. Um, and our targets typically clients are middle market, lower middle market companies. And we always say that they're technology driven. 
uh, not meaning that they're a tech company, but that they are a company that utilizes technology to some degree. And so it can be a you know manufacturing company or it can be a medical devices company. Uh, it doesn't have to be an IT or software or electronics. Right. You know anything that really has kind of a tech core to it. Yeah, that that that's awesome. So, what type of co- what type of companies are coming to you? Uh, I guess really, when are they coming to you? Are they coming to you like six months before they want to sell? Or are they coming to you like ten years before they want to sell? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a mix. Sometimes and frequently, I will say they come to us when they're ready to sell or they think they're ready to sell. Yeah. Um, other times, uh, somebody will say, you know, they've got a couple different uh, leaders of the company, owners of the company. One of the guys or gals was ready to get out and they think they want to sell in the next six to, six months to 24 months. Yeah. Um, and that, that honestly is probably better in many ways for us because we have the opportunity to get in and maybe fix a few things and prepare the company for sale as opposed to just doing the deal. Sure. Um, and also bring in the advisors and other participants that uh, they need to be talking to early on in the process as well. Yeah, I'm going to oversimplify this uh, and say it's sort of like, I guess you help stage like you would be selling a, a you know a, a piece of real estate, help stage it and fix it up and make the necessary changes to it so you get top value for it. Is that obviously an oversimplification, but... But that's that's fair. That's fair because you know we're we're, we're with a finger on the pulse of the market of of you know how things are trending in certain industries as well as what are, what's going on in the financial markets. What's the access to capital for buyers, or if it's a private equity backed buyer, you know what's what's their dry powder situation, uh, and right. that would enable them to be able to do a deal in six months or twenty four months. Yeah, that that makes sense. So identify for us exactly what sort of lower market and, and lower middle market and middle market means. As far as yeah. Gates is concerned. Yeah. So the way Gates and Company would define it is really transaction value, right? So if you're selling a business and you've got some cash at close and a seller component or some earnout, what's that total transaction value? Uh, we tend to look for things that are 5 million to 100 million in transaction value. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's really, you know, that tends to be middle market or lower middle market companies as opposed yeah. to, you know, what revenue or how many employees they have. Um, so that's that's where I say we kind of spend our time is that five to hundred million dollar transaction value. And okay. we've done things for some of our clients have been, you know, Fortune 500 companies. We've had uh, DuPont and FMC and oh, Hercules cool. and Ashland. And, and we've done some buy side work for those guys. And we did one sell side of a uh, business over in England for uh, FMC in the Omega 3 area. So uh, sometimes we get those big fish. Uh, of course, that that's that has to be uh, interesting, fun, and probably extremely challenging with uh, a lot yeah. of the corporate yeah. uh, red tape you have to go through. Yeah, we're we're good at it. I'm an ex Duponer, so I understand that well. Yeah, well, actually, let's. So I, I, that's actually where I wanted to go. I wanted to go kind of with your background. So to sure. say you're you're you have an un, un analytical brain would probably be a, an understatement. So you have a bachelor's in computer science and electrical engineering, a master's in electrical engineering, and an MBA from Wharton. So how do you make the leap from electrical engineering to what you do now? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And I think you know a lot of it is evolution in the career at DuPont. And then it's kind of interesting because DuPont's a very technical company, lots of PhDs running all over the place. Um, so you have the opportunity, in, at least in the program that I was hired into, to uh, experience different business units uh, and different functional areas. So I was able to be in sales, in product development, in operations, in manufacturing, in R&D, um, over the span of like eight years, you know, no assignment longer than two years and some as short as six months. So that was really helpful to kind of see the business side of things. And then I, you know, the other thing uh, is getting the MBA is certainly helps you see the business side of things. Sure. So it's kind of funny, the guys in DuPont, especially the PhD types were, David, go get your PhD, get your PhD. 
that's part of why I got my master's in electrical engineering. And then, you know, to them going to the business was going to the dark side, you know, <laughs> uh, but I, I went to the dark side anyway, and I got that MBA. And I think it was a great combination, honestly, because, you know, people who had business undergrad in the MBA program just got a little bit more businessy, you know, for the yeah. engineers that were in the program and, you know, people that were technical, you know, it was really an eye opener in terms of how things work on the business side. I remember like saying interest is good. How's the interest uh, expense good again? And how what's the leverage effective debt really mean? Um, you start figuring these things out. And uh, I really took a shine to uh, some of the strategic things and some of the just transactional things. So. I, I think that's kind of how we jumped into it. And uh, again, when I was, the reason I left DuPont was because my business unit was put up for sale and mm -hmm. I'd always kind of wanted to jump. I wasn't the guy who had the little light bulb that said, hey, I'm going to go make these widgets uh, yeah. and make skills, thousands of them. It was, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to do my own thing. And how do I get there? And so coming out of business school, my way of getting into entrepreneurship was an acquisition. Mm -hmm. So I actually bought a software company in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, I ran it, moved it to Delaware after a while and grew it and sold it um, in about three years, much faster than we had uh, expected the deal to take. Oh, wow. Uh, and that, that kind of got me going into uh, the MA world. So I said, that was a lot of fun. Maybe I should do it again. Yeah. Um, and that's where the, uh, the evolution of, uh, of Gates & Company really came out in 1999 to help business owners do some of the strategy and transactional work that I'd done myself. That's fascinating. So did you actually buy that software company with the expectation that you would sell it? And did you think you would do it as fast as you did? Yeah, so we did. We, I, I actually, um, when I was doing the acquisition, even though the, the seller had put together documentation on the company, I wrote my own business plan and went to investors and said, here's this asset that I think is really interesting. Here's how I'm going to change it and grow it. Here's how much I need from you guys. I sold all my DuPont stock I'd earned all those years and everything. So I, I staked myself as high as I could, but I still needed other people's money, as they call it, OPM. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I kind of went in saying, I'm gonna, we're going to buy it, we're going to grow it, we're going to sell it. Um, and it was, uh, you know, pretty interesting. It was, I always say there are, there are things you learn doing that that they can never teach you at Wharton. Sure. You know? and, it's, and especially a school like Wharton, which tends to say we're helping people run these big companies, you know, so the smaller company, they, they have entrepreneurial programs, but it's just not quite, you know, the same as getting in there and, and getting your hands dirty. And I, and I always joke that when I was at DuPont, I could, if I had an HR problem, I called HR. If I had a legal problem, I called legal. And when it was my company, I was, whenever I called HR or legal or any other department, I was also the guy that answered the phone. So I was calling myself saying, hello, legal. Yes. Uh, you know, you, you learn to do with 10 people um, what you have to do when you had, you know, 100,000 people before. Yeah, you wear a lot of hats for sure. Now, I'm, I'm just curious is when, you, you, if did you tell anyone, hey, I'm going to sell all my DuPont stock, this su super blue chip type of uh, steady, steady type of uh, stock and say, I'm going to, uh, and I'm going to sell it all to start a business and, and buy a business. And did people say, David, are you out of your mind? It, it's 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 the biggest um, what's the right word event that separates the entrepreneur from the wannabe entrepreneur. And I remember I was in the executive program at, at Wharton, and we had a hundred people in our class, roughly. And we had this entrepreneurial group that formed right after graduation, where we'd come together, you know, once a month, pretty regularly, and talk about entrepreneurial things and you know how do we start this, how do we do that. And I would say out of those thirty people, uh, thirty of the hundred, maybe two or three actually took that leap of leaving their old job behind and starting something new because yeah. it's a big step. You know, you've got this steady paycheck, you've got security, you've got a company back then anyway, that, you know, people were there 25, 35 years, you know, yeah. and so you to be able to say, yeah, to yep. be able to say, I'm, I'm jumping. That was, that was challenging. And, you know, there were times where, you know, you, you find that you're the last guy to get paid if you get paid. Right. You know, and that's, you know, that's another piece that you can't teach. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, that's cash flow, that's, cash flow management. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess when you know you look at your background in electrical engineering, there's a ton of analytics that go into to a deal and in helping right. a company improve their margins and, and increase EBITDA so they could be able to sell. So that does, you know, from an analytical perspective, that does seem like a, a good fit. It's almost, I would say that that's that's a good fit, and I know I'll almost say that the. Uh, affinity with the other CEO about their business is actually even more valuable. So they say, oh, you're a technical guy, you get what we're doing, or you're an engineer, I'm an engineer, or yeah. we have a technical product, you you can speak my language at least deep enough that you understand uh, if I'm BSing you or not. Yeah. So I think that's been really our advantage is, yeah, we have this good analytical and, and management consulting capability. Um, we're very efficient on the transactions, but we, we understand our client's business. And if, if we don't, we probably don't take them on as a client or we would probably say, hey, you know, you're you're, you're in an industry that's just not something that we understand. If it's really hardcore, you know, biotech, for example, we would say, okay, we can do medical devices and we've done those. And we understand, you know, 510K, you know, certifications and we understand HIPAA compliance when it gets into the IT world. You right. know, biotech, hardcore biotech and gene sequencing, probably not our thing. Right. You know? So we'd, we'd send that out somewhere else. That's great. And, and, you know, speaking of niches, so we, we, we're taught all the time in our space, like, Hey, you have to find a niche and you have to really, and I've talked, talked about a little bit on the, on the podcast, there's advisors that uh, financial planners that work with nothing but Chick-fil-A owners, or there's one guy that works with nothing but opt optometrists. Yeah. When you work with a niche, is that helpful for a sale or is that, you know, is that something that can help increase the value of a deal? Yeah, it, it is. And I would say that's, you know, there's the master or jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. And yeah. and early on, we used to say we we probably do too much because we were the jack of all trades, master of a few, we used to say kind of jokingly. That right. we we're good at a few very, um, you know, kind of siloed things. But but it's, it's true that if, you know, our, our very first client was a company called Software Consulting Group. And they had they were we call it two headed monster because they had one part of their business was doing um IT consulting in utilities, so like PSENG and Duke Power, and they were very good at that. But they also had another business that was high-end document management, mm -hmm. um, and and very, you know, very horizontal offering there, and very vertical in utilities. And yeah. so, what we found is that it was really tricky for them to be able to go to market with that because the the buyer that ended up we ended up helping them sell before we actually were doing the investment banking, but the company <laughs> that bought them was interested in their utility practice, their IT consulting because of their, their capabilities and their clients. And the rest of the business was really hard to get any value for because they didn't really want that. It was kind of a drag along, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, focusing on your core, being able to really differentiate. I always say it's much better to, to define your market narrow enough where you can differentiate and have a competitive advantage there versus trying to say, hey, we're just really good at kind of doing this thing. You know, you got you to be able to differentiate and, and uh, that's that's pretty much... Uh, more often, I'll say a niche offering than a, a very broad offering. That makes sense, and I guess that that you know you you've sort of niched up in in areas where you know the company has to be utilizing technology in order and an efficient way to be able to be sold. So, how did you sort of stumble upon that the need for that? Yeah, I'd, I'd say early on when we started Gates and Company, uh, as I said, we kind of started it as a mini McKinsey and Company. Yeah. Um, so it was competing with McKinsey. They're all a bunch of MBAs running around from you know Harvard and Wharton. And, uh, <laughs> but we 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 got we got Harvard and Wharton and uh, you know other MBAs, but we got people that had technical backgrounds. So uh, one of the first hires was a, a chemical engineer. Uh, another one was mechanical engineer. Uh, other was a comp sci, double E. So our core group early on were people that had technical backgrounds, MBAs, and business experience in 
kind of business to business environments, companies like DuPont or GE or Procter and Gamble or, you know, pick somebody. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's kind of where we started. So that made it easy for us to be able to say that that comment I made before, we have affinity with the, the leaders of our or our clients, so whether it's a client as big as a DuPont, where they say, oh, you guys definitely speak our language, um, or FMC or somebody like that, or a small guy who might be doing uh, production of, uh, you know, polymer uh, components, you know, with, yeah. uh, we, we, we sold a company called TPC, uh, TP Composites. So there's doing, you know, plastic composite technology, they have patents on different formulations, and we totally understood their market right off the, off the bat. That's great. Um, yeah. Well, you brought it up earlier and um, as you introduced your beer. So growing a business in the United States is hard enough, right. let alone going to Germany and having right. success. How does that even come to be? So it's a, it's a couple of ways that it came to be. One is during the undergrad studies, I did the old uh, study abroad. So I did a, a month long orientation in Munich and then a semester down in Salzburg, Austria. And then like a year later, I had the bug already. So I went back and did a summer job in Zurich, Switzerland. So I oh, got cool. to experience all three German speaking countries of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Basically. Um, so, yeah. So it was really a great experience. So that, that kind of put a little seed in there. Uh, but then as we were growing, a lot of our sell side stuff is surprising. I mean, it's not surprising um, because Germany is such a great company for engineering and technology that when we look for buyers, we, we, we always tell people we're, you know, a, a boutique investment bank here in Delaware, but we are global in terms of what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, we've done projects directly for the government of Japan, like, you know, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. We've done multiple projects for those guys. We've done projects in Brazil and in India, all over Europe. Um, so it's, it's we were aggressive early on saying we're not afraid to go anywhere in the world to do projects, send our people there or just uh, do transactional work as well. So that's another part of our story was we, we were finding lots of buyers in Switzerland and Germany and, uh, you know, Italy and France and England too, but um, a, a large number there. And as we were, uh, you know, I was traveling over there. I was saying, you know, be really interesting as a differentiation strategy for Gates and Company to not only say we do international, but but put a flag somewhere. And at the time we said, well, it's it's there's Asian markets, there's European markets. And if we're going to go to Asia, we're going to probably go to Tokyo. If we're going to go to Europe, we're probably going to go to Germany. And we started thinking Germany is a lot closer, a lot more like us. I had that German background and I thought, uh, you know, Germany was a place to be. And people said, why don't you go to Frankfurt? Because uh, that's the, the financial capital if you're doing investment banking. And we said, well, New York's the financial capital of U.S. and we're not there. So we think we're OK going to Munich. <laughs> it's, uh, it's much more fun than Frankfurt. And it's also more central if you throw in Austria and Switzerland. So that was kind of the early on idea. And and we started just kind of knocking around saying, let's see what, what we can turn up if I go over there, you know, three or four times a year for a couple of weeks or more each time and just kind of stir the pot. And we were fortunate to um, get a lot of connections. And and one of the, our key guys early on uh, had a side gig as the president of the American German Business Club over there and knew wow. everybody and connected us to everybody, uh, lawyers and you know bankers and, you know, kind of the venture capital community and the entrepreneurial community. And so we started, our, our pitch day one was, hey, we understand, uh, you know, technology businesses and we know you are looking to raise capital or you're looking to get acquired. And we're in the American market and there are more buyers there. There are more investors there and the valuations are better there. Let us help you. So our, our projects early on were kind of one way from Germany over to the United States. Um, then we got a, um, 
project with a fairly well-known entity around Wilmington that uh, I'll just keep the name out of this conversation for now. But sure. We helped them with um, entering the German market. They hired us for, uh, retained us for a number of months to do um, development work in the German market. And that was kind of a, a, a getting paid to almost go do business development in Germany on that project, which was great. So we were helping uh, with their products and their solutions as well as our own. And we got some very interesting uh, clients out of it. We, we early on got a company uh, in kind of the medical space in, in what was formerly the Eastern Germany. One of our coolest clients is a company called Reflect uh, in north part of Munich that uh, does augmented reality. And they don't do it like uh, gaming or virtual reality. They actually do business cases where uh, they can use augmented reality in manufacturing of uh, automobiles or control wow. panels for uh, electrical systems and things where you hold up your iPad over some control panel and things pop on there and tell you the, you know, the torque setting and which wrench to use. And if you need help, you touch a button and a guy pops up and says, oh, here's here's what we're seeing and here's uh, here's the schematic you'll need to solve that problem. So very interesting That's business crazy. applications. Yeah, and they did well and they got acquired. Uh, we didn't get to do the sale part of it, uh, but we did some of the uh, foundational work way back when. And uh, so companies like that are, are on the roster. And I, I'll say, you know, I'll, I'll candor that uh, COVID made it really hard to get anything done uh, those couple of years because as much as we were locked down, they were locked down tighter. Yeah. And we, yeah. I was not able to travel over there. I was actually there three weeks ago uh, for the first time in a long time. Um, I was there in March of 2020. So it was almost two and a half years that I wasn't wow. traveling there. And I was still Zooming with people. Uh, sure. But uh, yeah, it's really hard unless you're physically there. Well, I think that's pretty amazing to be able to identify and say like, hey, United States isn't the only place that conducts business. You know, I do think yeah. personally, you know, I'm speaking for myself here that a lot of times Americans are a little bit, uh, hey, we're the only game in town. We're the only place that right. exists, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think if you, if someone came to me and said, hey, we want to sell your business, I would have never even dreamed that maybe I could sell it to an international company. So I think that's a that's great foresight yeah. by you. Yeah, and I'll tell you, it's it's when you think about it, you're you're leaving out a whole bunch of of potential buyers if you don't throw that in the mix because these guys a lot of times, especially if the company's you know right size and right shape and all those things, um, it's it's for a European company a great way for market entry. They might say, hey, we're you know 150 million in revenue now, and and we we only need to get get a 10 or 50 million dollar revenue business over there, but we want to buy our way into the market instead of trying to build it because it's just going to take us too long. We don't know what we're doing, but if there's somebody already there. And we can do the acquisition. That's a great way for us to enter, and you know, we'll we'll put our products onto their uh, platform and and uh, enter the market more quickly. So it, I, it works. That that is great. So uh, there there's a book that I've read before. It's called Walking to Destiny, and it's about you know selling a business. And according to the author, eighty to ninety percent of a business owner's net worth is tied up in the in their business. Yeah. Yet seventy percent of the business will never never sell. And fourteen percent of them will get what they uh, will net won't get what they think is a appropriate value from the sale. Why do you think that is? So two two topics there. One um, you brought up is is that a bunch of people just don't sell. Yeah, and I think that that you know that's an interesting one because I think sometimes people simply wait too long, and by the time that they're they say maybe something happens, maybe it's a, a life issue where they've got a disability happens, or they get a divorce, or I don't know, something that really yeah. impacts them. And they say, oh, I've got to sell. Um, but they, they can't because they haven't prepared it. And it's not, maybe it's not saleable, sellable. Yeah, now they have an anchor uh, around their neck. Yeah. They have an anchor around their neck. Um, and I think other people just wait too long. I was amazed that somebody 
called me the other day and said, got a guy, he's, he's 80, he's still running the business and he's just, he knows he needs to sell, but he's still running it. And this was a year ago. And I, you know, I said, I'm happy to talk anytime. <laughs> and I, and then he, as far as I know, they're still not, not doing anything, but I, I think they probably got some, they must have some kind of uh, succession plan going on because that's just, you know, you can't keep uh, waiting forever. And, yeah. and I think a lot of times the business is just running the ground, especially the smaller ones. If, if they're not well run, if, if the CEO has, 100% control and are really, you know, they're they're the business as much as, as anything. Um, if if they don't get to the point where they need to sell, it's it just goes away, right? There's no, mm -hmm. nobody there to pick it up. Um, even if um, a spouse gets the, you know, the business if somebody passes away, you know, it's it's sometimes really hard to do. The value part is is easier to answer, I think, um, because I think a, a lot of people have um, wrong expectations of what the value <laughs> is going into it. That's very um, <laughs> and I think I think one of the things I'll probably come back to this theme a few times is preparation is key. Um, I think a lot of business owners just aren't prepared um, when they say I want to sell. And oftentimes, again, they might have a trigger that says I'm going to sell. And they yeah. haven't they haven't up to that point really prepared, not just what's the process, but what's the value. And, you know, getting an evaluation um, can be important. And it's not you know, there's kind of two valuations out in the world. There's one that a CPA firm might do that says, you know, here's what we need to put in for the tax papers. And, you know, those numbers are somewhat, um, um, I don't know, not, I won't say artificial, but they, you know, they're, they're very cut and dry where if you came to us and said, give us a valuation, we'd say, okay, well, you know, it, we're, we're not going to spend you know, $20,000 doing a valuation. We're going to do better than back of the envelope, but we're not going to we're not going to print this in gold. We're right. going to say, if, if it were me out there selling it, here's how I'd, you know, spin it. And here's who I think would be interested as a financial buyer or a strategic buyer. And I think we might be able to get X. And if we got a nice competitive dynamic, we might be able to get 10% over X. Um, yeah. You know, there's, so I, I think those are, you know, the kinds of approaches that says, okay, well, this is, this is what the, the deal guy is going to get <laughs> versus what, you know, the CPA firms, and not that, not that they're wrong, but they're usually a little bit more cut and dried and, and they're very much, um, you know, based on an income approach, a market approach, a, a asset approach or a blend of those weighted average blend of those. And we do those too. We do the weighted cost of capital, you know, uh, analysis and figure all that stuff out, but it's not really part of our business model. It's just, we've done them before. Um, and, yeah. A little bit esoteric. Yeah. So I think that's the bigger is issue about why they don't get what they expect is they expect too much. Um, and it can also be deal structure too, right? So, you know, if a business is worth $20 million and they get $10 million in cash and closing and a $10 million earn out, they may be better off had they taken $50 million in cash and nothing else. You know, <laughs> it's, it's sometimes deal structure can be as important as valuation because you, you may never get, you know, your earn out depending on how it's structured. So, you know, we've, we've had deals where we've been willing to take some, I'll call it contingent cap, contingent value um, or consideration in form of a seller paper or something where you can actually get a, you know, a UCC listing or some kind of lien that makes that that part of the value much more real. So if it's, you know, 10 in cash and 10 in a, a seller paper with a UCC filing, that's a whole lot better than a, than a $10 million earnout that has funky uh, targets that might be hard to, to reach and hard to define. Yeah, how how that that does make sense. I mean, that that has a little bit of teeth to it, as opposed to just like a handshake and say, "Yeah, I'm, it, it, the business goes under, sucks for you." Um, right, how right. often do you do you see owners wanting to do sort of like the second bite of the apple thing, where they sell part of the business, reinvest back into the company that bought them, and stay on for a period of time? 
So that that's, you know, usually I'll call it a private equity buyer scenario typically. And it's also typically a platform buy, not always. You can have bolt-ons to platforms that might have that structure. But what, what the difference between a platform and a bolt-on is typically a private equity wants a decent size company to be the platform. So mm-hmm. let's say 3 million of, of EBITDA earnings, you know, before interest tax appreciation amortization. So if your EBITDA is three or four or five, that might be a good size company for a platform. But if your EBITDA is, you know, one or two, you they might say, well, you're a bolt-on to a platform, right? So, um, and, and they may still, they call it rolling equity. They may still say, you know, we're going to give you 10 million for your company and we want you to roll 2 million in, in of that cash into equity into this this platform. Yeah. So that can happen. Um, and their goal is we're going to go do three or four more acquisitions in the next few years. You know, our enterprise value is going to go from uh, 10 million to 100 million. So everybody's going to get a 10x so you're going to have a smaller piece of a bigger pie. That that happens all the time. Um, uh, and, and oftentimes they're reasonable, you know. So, um, But what we see a lot of times is these bolt-ons aren't necessarily rolling equity. So we just sold one. Um, I, I'll just say recently because if I'm going to talk about deal terms, I can't say who it is. But we just sold one recently that had you know, two components in the in the consideration for the business. And none of it was equity in the entity that was going forward. And it was a private equity backed entity. So, you know, they, they probably did that with their first acquisition and they probably haven't done it with their subsequent ones. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. I'm kind of rambling there. No, but... no, no. That, that does make sense. That makes total sense. Um, you know, when you look at a business owner trying to sell their business, this theme has come up multiple times on this podcast. It's a super emotional time. Um, and there's a lot of emotions that go in for the business owner to sell. How do you help play part therapist to help the the owner and say, okay, this is the right decision. This is why, how, how do you manage that, that aspect of it? Cause that's not, that's certainly not electrical engineering. <laughs> yeah, no, you use, the right word. you use the exact right word therapist. I even say that oftentimes, you know, early in the process, um, I, I try to set expectations around, different parts of the process because it is it's certain parts are painful um you know everybody knows about the concept of deal fatigue that if things keep dragging on they keep asking for more diligence more diligence the seller could get really fatigued and just get you know frustrated with it and kind of throw up their hands um so we we try to prepare them that it's going to get tricky there's we we talk about a deal being two phases of diligence phase one is kind of light enough for the buyers to have information that says we can make a non-binding offer and once you get a letter of intent signed, that could that kicks off phase two diligence, which I always say it's the root canal phase. You know, it's <laughs> for everything uh, under the sun to be um, requested and analyzed, and and then probed a little bit here and there when they have questions about it. And that's also going to form part of the definitive purchase agreement. A lot of those things that they're asking for get tucked into the uh, the, the disclosure schedules on a, on a purchase agreement. So we try to prepare them for that. The other part we try to prepare them for is that there's going to be at least one, two, maybe three times where we're going to be walking you off the ledge. Mm-hmm. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean, there's going to be, always is, at least one or two issues that seem insurmountable. Uh, that's, we can't get past it and, uh, you know, there's no way through it. And somehow we find a way, always does. Uh, we had one that actually happened at closing. Uh, oh, we were wow. at the table signing and uh, the buyer said, wait a minute, what's this uh, environmental clause in here? And I said, well, you know, we're, you, you guys are, um, you know, allowing us to waive this one in, uh, warranty around the uh, environmental issue. He said, oh, we can't do that. <laughs> and we thought, we're at the closing table. Why are you bringing this up now? And it was so contentious that we said, okay, well, we'll go in another room and talk about it. You guys go in your room and talk about it. And the buyer was two or 300 million in revenue. So while we're in, why, when we came back, 
They said, we called all of our plants and they've never had an issue with this, so we're okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> we were all sweating and we thought this deal's just blowing up. This is like, this, I was the one who had to talk myself off a ledge on that one. Uh, because it was, you know, it was already in the agreement. Why are they bringing it up at closing? So there are always these uh, issues that, uh, you know, can scare the crud out of a buyer. Um, and 99% of the time they, they get um, addressed and you work them through. But definitely a lot of emotions around the diligence, deal fatigue, um, the, what I call the walk off the, the walk, take them off the cliff, yeah. um, off the edge issues. Um, so it, it is emotional. How often do you see after a sale that the owner, especially if they go to work for, you know, either they, they end up becoming yeah. an employee or well, how often do you, do you see the owner being sort of lost? Like, Hey, that business was my identity and now I'm an employee and I hate it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a mix of that. Um, and, and I'd say the reality is we, after about a year or so, we don't necessarily see what's going on there where you probably do in your business. You probably Definitely. are more, much closer to that than we are. Yeah, um, we try to stay engaged. We had um, a, a company, Storbeck Search, that a uh, really good transaction that we finished February of 2020, right before COVID went to. Um, and it was perfect timing. But um, you know, they because of that, there were some challenges. You know, during uh, the next year or so, and uh, the CEO continued to to reach out to us, which we were happy to. And we you know we'd reach out to her and and interface um, and make sure that that some of the questions and issues that they were having during the you know the subsequent parts of the transaction, uh, you know, we're going well. And so, yeah, we, I think people um, generally, if they're doing some type of uh, one, two year, at least minimum, um, you know, transition period where there's maybe an earnout period, they're, they're engaged and they're, they're busy enough that they aren't necessarily thinking about, you know, did I make the right choice or the wrong choice? Uh, they've kind of got to work it. And especially if there's something um, tied to their performance, you know, they're going to want to hit the ball out of the park and they're going to yeah. want to make sure their employees are taken care of. They're going to want to make sure their customers are taken care of. So there, that we see all the time that there is that definite um, interest by CEOs to make sure that their universe and their legacy is is transitioned, uh, so that they have you know they can hang their hat and said say I built it, I sold it, it's still doing well. You know, so I think more often than not we see that, but I, I definitely know that there are people that uh, are like, okay, now what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> Especially if they're, you know, in their 40s or 50s, you know, and then they're like, well, I can go do this again. You know, that's, that's yes. probably more challenging. Yep, yeah, exactly. I'll sit on my non-compete for X amount of years and then I'll, st I'll start over again. It's yeah, funny man, because I, it really becomes less about the money and more about like, you know, the build, for example, the thrill of running yeah. a business. Yeah, no, I have a brother-in-law who's in his early 70s and uh, he's just, uh, he keeps running. He's got a, a really good HVAC company, kind of an industrial commercial grade uh, company down in Atlanta. And yeah. I just don't see him retiring. You know, he's he's continuing to rock and roll. So yeah. <laughs> um, what what it would be if you could see the you know you've done a number of these transactions. What's the most common mistake you see a business owner making as they approach the potential to be sold? Yeah, so I think this was I was teasing this out earlier. It's preparation. Um, you know, I, I think you know it's 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 a couple of things. It's preparing. For, in a sense of knowledge of what's what's it like to sell a business? What are the steps? What are the processes? Who are the players? Um, what should I expect in terms of timing and things like that? Yeah. Uh, we talk valuation. Understand your valuation because if you're out there and you've got your friends saying, oh, you know, Joe, this is worth $25 million, and, and, you know, you and I might look and say, if, if you could get 20 you should be thrilled. You mm -hmm. know, so 25 is crazy, but uh, let's shoot for it. But um, if you don't get it, you know, we, we need to set expectations that um, this, if we get a value of 20 
that's that's the number that uh, we're going to be able to take because we agree that that's what it's worth. Let's mm -hmm. shoot for 25. But you, sometimes you have to uh, get those um, expectations set early on. So I think that's the, the thing that, you know, preparation and all things. Preparation also means, you know, governance, financial controls, having the strategy in place so that you can tell a buyer, uh, you know, I didn't just, you know, turn on the lights in the morning and turn them off at night. I've, I'm building it for the, the long term. Yeah, that, that's for sure. And you know, obviously you want to make sure that you have a business that's not totally dependent upon the owner pulling the handle every single day to, to, to create the revenue. That, yeah. that has to be a tricky issue as well. No, absolutely. That's that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's, you know, you need to build. Sometimes you get to a point where you need to start saying, I'm building a business to sell, you know, yeah. and that has to happen at some point. And that means you've got to let your lieutenants do more. You've got to be willing to kind of step back, let them get into the strategic planning and things like that. So that's, that's a good point. Yeah. That's more, you know, you move from, you know, sort of, Hey, I'm so-and-so that runs XYZ business as opposed to being, I'm the CEO of a company that does XYZ, you know, right. that's right. interesting. Um, yeah. All right. Well, the, you know, final question, obviously that the time they're recording this, the economy is volatile. We'll just say that inflation <laughs> is high. Interest yeah, rates well are very high. I think, uh, you know, I think yeah. I just looked at a 30 year mortgage right now is like 7.8% or 7.4%. Yeah. With uh, the economy not doing well, inflation going up, interest rates going up. Should some of the owners that were contemplating selling three, three years ago be concerned that they've missed the boat completely? Yeah, I would say uh, candidly a bit. Um, I would say, you know, you can't say that it's necessarily a hundred percent seller market anymore. I think those headwinds are changing the playing field to maybe being neutral now and could be potentially more of a buyer's market. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I know for certain that 2021 was a gangbuster year. Um, deal terms were very favorable to sellers. Um, availability of capital was very strong. Um, so I think that's changing. Um, so you have to look at not only what's the, what's a buyer's ability to get capital because they might say well we can't fund this right off of our balance sheet we might need to go borrow five or ten million dollars and you know what's what's bank of america whispers whoever they're going to borrow from you yeah. know what are their their rates going to be and and what's that cost of capital for us um and if they're private equity back you know private equity firms have done very well in terms of raising capital um even through this last couple of quarters several quarters they've continued to have a fair amount of dry powder there so but private equity likes to leverage every deal, right? So they'll put some of their own capital in, but they still borrow. So, mm -hmm. you know, that ability um, to have cheap financing does definitely influence um, the buy side. So, uh, so yeah, I'd say, I don't wouldn't say anybody's missed the boat because there's so many dynamics that say you kind of have to sell when you have to sell and you don't know, is it, is today going to be better than it is a year and a half from now, you know? So yeah. it's really hard to second guess some of that stuff. Um, and, you know, people may, uh, change things after the election here tomorrow. You know, you may see things go one way or the other. So you, you kind of have to take all of that in um, when you build your your model. The other thing I would say too, though, is is you know if if you're prepared to sell, that can be part of your um, criteria. Is all right. Let's let's build the plan to sell. Let's build our strategic plan so we put these elements in place over the next six months or next 24 months. But at least you're prepared, right? You've got the elements in place. You're moving towards it. You've got your advisors together. That's the other thing that the team typically is, you know, an investment banker like Gates and company, but it's a wealth management guy like yourself. Yeah. So you're a deal lawyer, specifically a deal lawyer. Um, and, and then your CPA accountant transaction person there. Yeah. That's such a good point. A lot of times, you know, when, when we, we'll, we'll deal with a client and they'll say, um, I got an offer for my company at X, Y, and Z. What can I even live off of this? And we'll look at it and go, 
yeah, no, you're better off just staying in the business as opposed to selling or, Hey, you should really consider this. You're in good shape. If you, if you want to take some risk off the table and put some money in your pocket. Yeah. And what, and what I say when I get those calls is do you, do you, do you know if you went out there and tried to find all potential buyers out there, if this buyer uh, offer would be at the top of the list, bottom of the list, or not even on the list, you know? Right. So that's, that's, it's, it's purely a self-serving comment to a, an investment banker is that sure. process you know, helps you figure out what's the best buyer out there and you get a competitive dynamic going as well. So that if you've got at least two people interested or maybe more, um, you can get the opportunity to, to bid things up. And, and yeah. we've done that. We've had um, sales that have had, you know, somebody who said, I really want this asset. So I'm willing to pay more or I'll do a preemptive bid um, at, you know, 25% premium because I want it. And that, that happens. I mean, I think it's huge just to go through the process, just so you know, you know, I, I, we, we've yeah. talked to a lot of owners that, get unsolicited offers and have no idea if the offer they got makes any of it, it to your point is low, higher yeah. in the middle, you know, right on. Right. Yeah. No, that's, this is awesome. I really enjoyed our, our time together. Tell us a little bit about if we want to learn more about you or Gates and company, where do we go? Uh, I'd say the easiest thing is Gates and company.com. It's uh, Gates and company all together.com. LinkedIn is kind of, you know, our business uh, 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 platform as well. So we tend to use LinkedIn for our uh, corporate work and, posting articles and things like that. And, uh, and goofy things like I just, uh, I think Gates and Company just posted today a picture of me playing nine holes anywhere at a, at a uh, tournament uh, up in Chadsport, PA, where we were sponsoring uh, the event for benefit um, St. Michael's School and Nursery in Wilmington. So oh, that's uh, great. It, was, it was fun and for a good cause. So uh, we put that up on LinkedIn <laughs> and that kind of stuff is, is where you can find us. That's great. That's certainly a win-win. Um, to learn more and about how our firm helps. Find me at the bar. What's that? Sorry, you can, you can also find me at the bar. <laughs> uh, to, to learn more about our, how our firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. And to hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half-hour.com. All right, let's rate these beers. Yeah. Iron Hill, Galactic Stardust, Hazy Juicy IPA. I really liked it. I go on a scale of five. I'm going to give this a four. I certainly would drink this again. How about you? So... Um... I'll try to get the uh, fancy logo, but I can never get it on there. Um, there it is. Um, so this was a, a, a bit of a ringer because I already knew about this beer going into it. Um, and it was uh, one of my favorite vice beers. I'd say uh, it's a it's a five out of five. And I would put the Paul Lanner's vice beer uh, right up there with it. A few others, I would put it four and three. Perfect. But, uh, yeah, Francis Connor, it's uh, all they do is vice beer. Well, I shouldn't say that. They do a, a couple of things now, but they do like a non-alcoholic vice beer, which is apparently one of the best non-alcoholic beers out there because it has a lot of flavor. Oh, really? Maybe I should switch to that. Probably not. I probably won't, but I should. <laughs> it's, 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 when, it's when you, uh, you know, German uh, driving laws are pretty strict. So, you know, if you can have one vice beer, if you want to have another one, then they typically will switch over to an alcohol-free one. And that's uh, smart, smart planning. I love it. David, thank you so much for your time. It was great to have you on. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Happy Hip Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share a beer, follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC. 